So full disclosure, I uh, submitted a uh, manuscript to your elders and your pastors. So if you don't like what you hear this morning, uh, don't email me, email them. So they approve this sermon. And so um, uh, we are going to be parked in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. So just those three verses. So if you have your notes, if you have your apps, go ahead and just get there. Uh, we're going to go over some Greek, uh, just because that's how I roll. So um, take notes, and if after the sermon you have any questions, please feel free to, to ask. Um, but before we do that, we have to kind of set the scene a little bit, because in John 37, John tells us that this was the last day and that great day, and so we need to know what that means. We need to know what the setting of what Jesus is telling us. And what he's talking about is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a week-long celebration of God's provision for the harvest that took place every year around October. For seven days, the Israelites would live outside their homes in makeshift tents, sometimes sleeping on their rooftops in the alleys, and some people would even set up tents in the temple court. And it was commanded by God in Leviticus 23 as one of the three pilgrimage festivals, this being one, Passover being the next, and then Pentecost being the last. During the feast, every day, the high priest would draw water out of a pool called the Pool of Siloam. Now, we're not particularly sure exactly where this pool was, but it had to have been somewhere near the temple, because what would happen is the high priest would go to the Pool of Siloam, he would put uh, water into a large golden cistern, and then he would carry it, leading a procession with musicians and people waving palms, rejoicing and singing up the streets of Jerusalem to the temple. On the last day, however, so the setting of this particular text, there was a special water pouring ceremony to usher in the end of the festival. The high priest would once again go to the pool of Siloam. The musicians and the people would be following him, but this time they would be singing repeatedly as the priest was making his way to the temple and altar, Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw well from the waters of salvation. And once the priest made it to the altar, he would circle it seven times, imitating the conquering of the city of Jericho. And he would have an assistant who had a cistern full of wine. And the high priest would be facing west, and the assistant would be facing east. And when the priest began to pour the water, the assistant would pour the wine at the same time. And all of this was meant to symbolize the day that God would pour out His Spirit on all people. And so the ceremony was meant to anticipate the day that God would pour out His Spirit on Jew and Gentile alike. Now, Christian scholars believe that this is exactly the moment. Just as the priest was circling the altar for the seventh time, just as the people would be murmuring, waiting in anticipation, and the wine poured out on the altar, that Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, when the text said he stood up, it doesn't mean that he was just you know, sitting and he just stood up. What it really means is that he found a place of prominence so that he could position himself in such a way that everybody could see him and hear him, and he was about to make himself a public spectacle. And Jesus cries out. He doesn't just say it in kind of the old movie stoic. He cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
So Jesus stands up and every person can hear him. And he says, no more waiting. It's here. I am is here. The future anticipated salvation has come now. What you celebrate in type and shadow is now here in the flesh, standing, walking, drinking, talking right in front of you. And the great tragedy of this scene is that these ceremonies, these Pentecost and Passover, these things were meant to point the people to God, to draw them into his presence. Yet here is God in the flesh, tabernacled with them. He has left the security and comfort of heaven, given up his shelter to come and dwell with his people, and they don't even recognize him. Dear friends, we are all in danger of forgetting our absolute and unrelenting need for God to long for his presence and instead rely upon our religious life and our successes to give us meaning and purpose apart from God himself. It remains one of the great ironies of the Jewish nation at this time that they came face to face with the living God. And rather than falling on their knees to worship him, they mock him, they scorn him, they kill him. You see, we are living in an era that the Jews of Jesus' day could, could only imagine, they could only symbolize. The promised Holy Spirit has been poured out to God's people the day of Pentecost on Jew and Gentile alike. And from now on until Jesus comes back, every single person who believes in Jesus is on a spirit-enabled mission to spread the gospel to our families, to our friends, to our neighborhood, and Lord willing, our city and our nation. We cannot be on mission and not be in pursuit of God. God's people pursue him in right relationship through his son by his Holy Spirit. And so you cannot proclaim the mission and message of God without God himself. And so in this text, verse 37 through 39, Jesus provides us with three insights. First, we must have a longing for the presence of God. Second, we must believe in Jesus. And then third, we must live by the Spirit. And so the first insight is we must have a longing for the presence of God. So the Greek word for thirst here is a Greek word, dipos, D-I-P-O-S. And it has a double meaning. It can mean both physical thirst as well as spiritual thirst. And for spiritual thirst, what it means is a longing and desperate need for something. It's recognizing that there is something inside of you which can only be satisfied by something outside of you. And that is exactly what thirst is, even in the physical sense. Thirst and hungers are reminders that we need something outside of ourselves in order to sustain ourselves. I can no more satisfy my thirst for a drink or my hunger for food by simply willing that I am fed than I can satisfy uh, uh, my soul through sheer will. Jesus is talking about a spiritual thirst, a great recognition in ourselves that goes deep into the core of who we are, that aches and groans for deeper meaning and purpose, and a joy that can only be satisfied by God himself. Now, I would submit to you that there is a negative sense to this thirst and that there is a positive sense to this thirst. 
In the negative sense, Jesus is not speaking about people who are just curious or merely impressed by God. Merely being curious is not the same as thirsting, because curiosity can be satisfied with minimal effort. A sip here, a sip there, a little reading there. There is a commitment that the curious can't and won't pursue, and mere curiosity is not enough to get you to a place of real pursuit with God. Now, nor is thirst being impressed with God, meaning someone who uses God to pad their moral resume, virtues and morals and and accomplishments. God is not another tool in our self-help utility belt that simply helps us achieve our best life now. He is not something that we add to our personality, to our pedigree, to our success, to our resume, in order to sort of round ourselves out. And we see this most vividly played out in the story of the rich young ruler. You have a wealthy and prominent young man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? The question that every person should ask, the most important question. And Jesus says, don't cheat on your wife, don't murder, don't steal, don't give false testimony, obey your parents. And the rich young ruler says, I've done all this since I was a boy. Well, I'm glad he did not cheat on his wife when he was a boy. He says, all this I have kept. Jesus says, one thing you are lacking. Go and sell everything and give it to the poor and follow me. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who record this, will say that he went away sad, depressed, because he was exceedingly rich. You see, Jesus saw through his curiosity and went straight for the heart and exposed that the man was willing to follow Jesus so much, so much as he didn't have to give up anything. So long as he can continue to live in any old way he wants without any real commitment, any real change or transformation. In much the same way, the curious and impressed come to Jesus with good intentions, but when they find out that, the most, Christ, that most of the Christian life leads to self-denial and unselfishness, They hop back in their electric cars with their coexist bumper stickers and they move on their merry way. Christianity is interesting only so far as it doesn't change you. But it becomes real, it becomes valuable, it becomes transformative when we take up our cross. It's at that point that it becomes life in us. If that is you here this morning, just merely curious, impressed with Jesus, let me tell you that I think that's a good starting point, but it's not the end of the race. In a sense, truly seeking and thirsting for God ought to leave you begging for more and not be satisfied with the table scraps of religion or moralism. Resist the urge to feel satisfied. Go deeper Lay hold of Christ, lay hold of God until it becomes life in you. I would submit to you that there is a positive sense to this thirst. Jesus is talking to people who will seek God and yet continue to seek him more. That is the paradox of the Christian life, that we are to be the most satisfied people on the earth, and yet we should be the most thirsty for God. We are marked by a longing for God, a sense that though we have found him, 
we continue to seek him more. We have this example in Exodus 33. It's one of my favorite passages. When God tells Moses that he is going to give the Israelites everything that he has promised, he's even, he even says in Exodus 33, I'm going to send an angel before you. I'm going to conquer everything for you. And he says, but my presence, God says, my presence will not go with you. And Moses, that great intercessor, says that God not give them anything if his presence does not go with them. And then Moses begs to see the glory of God. There is, excuse me, there is no one in the Old Testament who had more face-to-face interaction with God than Moses And yet for Moses, he begged for more. He wanted to see more and to experience more of God's presence. It was never enough for Moses. And it's not just Moses. All over the Old Testament and New Testament, we are uh, commanded to continually seek the Lord. David in Psalm 63, you, God, are my God. Listen, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I don't do the iPad thing, I'm sorry. In the New Testament, James 4, come near to me, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Jesus says continually in the New Testament, Seek me, you will find me. Come with me, follow me. All of this is a deep and desperate longing, thirsting, seeking for God himself to experience his love and mercy and compassion and grace, and that others would join in. To thirst for God means that we are not satisfied with facts and knowledge, but that there is something inside the soul that prompts us to read and study and pray and meditate and congregate together and worship together, to ache, to experience just a taste of God's presence. We must lay hold of that desire cultivate it. And the scary part is when we do that, when we seek God, he may actually show up. Every person in the Old Testament, when God shows up, they're terrified because he's a terrifying God. And God may not reveal himself in a mountaintop booming voice from the sky, but in simple and profound ways, which tells us, which dig deep into our bones that he is there, that he wants to be known, and that we are not alone in our sufferings and in this world. So that's the first insight, um, a thirst for God. The second is that from this thirst must come a commitment to Christ. We must believe on Jesus. Whoever believes in me, the Greek phrase used here is pestuon, which is from a Greek word that John and other New Testament writers love to use. It's pistis. And pistis, pestuon, carries with it this idea of an active believing, an active believing that also leads to permanent change and lasting transformation. Pistis infers two things, activity and exclusivity. 
So by activity, I mean the entirety of the person's being, his heart, mind, and soul, making a lifelong commitment to trust and obey Christ. Pistis means to commit to something so real that it changes everything about you. It's bringing everything you are under this real reality, which then touches everything you do, say, and think. In that sense, it is active because what you trust, obey, and base your life on isn't just conceptual, it's not just philosophical, it's not just an idea, but it's real and it influences everything that you do. The entirety of who you are is willingly and lovingly subjected to the reality of who Christ is. So when Jesus says, believe on me, he's saying that your reality needs to change so that everything about you is filtered through the reality of who I am. Jesus saying who I am. Pistis is not just believe, it's believing. It's not just faith, it's faithfulness. It's not just trust, it's trusting. It's not just obey, it's obeying. And to the degree that you believe on him, will will you find the grace and strength that we all need when trial and hardships and loss inevitably come into our lives? So that the reality of Jesus shapes our circumstances and not our circumstances shaping our reality. And I tell you this as somebody who is suffering. Dear friends of ours has an eight-year-old boy who is in the hospital from a brain bleed. His brain is swelling. They had to remove a third of his skull. Have you ever seen a third of somebody's skull removed? It's terrifying. <laughs> and this family, I mean, they have to, if they weren't Christians, I don't know what they do. And when we pray for this boy, when we pray for their family, we pray that the reality of who Christ is comes into their lives. That his presence is known, that God's presence is known, that this boy would be healed. So this isn't just jargon. This isn't just Christianese. Many people have to live through this. Christ has to become the reality in which your circumstances are based on. Otherwise, I don't know how you're going to get through your circumstances. Christ is the basis on which everything you do is built on. And for that reason, when circumstances seek to rob us of our joy and our commitment, we can lean on him as the true source of what is real, what gives life, and what gives strength. Christ is our reality. And because of that, believing also means that he is our exclusive reality. And so believing in Jesus is not just active, it's also exclusive. Jesus tells us there is no other way to come to the Father but through him. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 2.12, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved. And we could replicate this from scriptures, but it is clear that the thirst for God, the pursuit of God can only come through faith, trust, and obedience in Christ. That is why Jesus says, believe in me. 
He is from the Father. He is God in the flesh. And it is through Jesus and only Jesus that we can pursue God. There is a scene in The Silver Chair, one of the last books from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I think Lance is a big C.S. Lewis fan, so I'm, I haven't, I'm obligated to do something with C.S. Lewis here in the sermon. Um, and this book follows a girl named Jill Pohl, and she finds her way somehow into Narnia. Everybody just seems to all of a sudden be in Narnia. And she's thirsty, and she comes to a stream, only to be startled and frightened when she is confronted by Aslan, that great lion. And this is the conversation. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promises, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now, without even noticing as she took a step nearer. Do you eat girls, Jill said. It's a legitimate question if you're in front of a talking lion, I think. Aslan replies, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. He just said it. I daren't come and drink. I don't know where daren't came from, but that's what it is. It's, I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. To which Aslan replies, there is no other stream. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. C.S. Lewis goes on. No one had, who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream knelt down and began scooping water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. This is why you guys quote C.S. Lewis a lot. So. You see, there is no other stream. There is no other river, no other source of water that can quench the thirst for God but Christ. And to the degree that we believe that, that the reality of who Christ is takes hold of us and begins to pour into us like a stream, that this amazing thing will happen. We will begin to become like rivers filled with the Spirit, which then is overflowing and poured out into the lives of others. And that takes us to our third and final insight. We must live by the Spirit. John 7, 38 says, Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit. Thank you, John, for telling us what that meant. Sometimes they don't tell us. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in Jesus was later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not been glorified. And so what does Jesus mean when he says that rivers of living water will flow from within them? Well, primarily it means that believers are filled up and overflowing with God's Spirit. Remember the setting. The high priest has just come back from the pool. He's filled a cistern with water from this pool, and he's about to pour it out on the altar where there's a sacrifice waiting. 
And all this symbolized God pouring out his spirit in the day of salvation. And Jesus is saying that if they believe in him, that they will not simply be pools for which the spirit can be poured into or out of like storage units, but that their lives would be like rivers flowing out into the world and becoming agents of change. That is precisely the image that Jesus is giving us. He's saying from within them, some Greek translations has from the belly, from the heart, the inner man will the spirit give us life, but it also gives the power to give life to those around us. In Ezekiel 47, the prophet has a vision about a river flowing from God's temple. And it is this text that Jesus most likely had in mind when he's talking to or screaming out to the people. In that vision, it says where the water flows and empties into the sea, the salty water becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be a large number of fish because the water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows through them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for the healing. Jesus is telling us that wherever he is believed and the spirit is in them, that out to them will come rivers of life, like the temple in Ezekiel's vision, allowing for not only their flourishing, but for the flourishing of the people around them, their neighborhoods, their communities, their schools, should experience this life because the Christians who live there, the spirit-filled Christians who live there and work there and play there are overflowing with life. I am convinced and often convicted that as a Christian, regardless of my circumstances, that I live my life in such a way that the people around me are blessed and see that my faith in Jesus is real. I want to be humble and generous, and those are things that typically are not my characteristics. I want to be hospitable and loving. Those are the characteristics of my wife. I want the people around me to see the glory of Christ in me and wonder, how can I get that? And so this raises some good questions for us. Are the resources that God has blessed us with being used correctly to not just honor God with our lips, but honor him with our very lives? Does the reality of who Jesus is touch every aspect of your life, your relationships, your finances, your work, your play, whatever? And my wife and I, we talk about this often. Are we living our lives in such a way that Christ in us is not only shining out like a beacon, but is overflowing and poured out? and to the people that God has put us in front of? Are we compassionate, slow to judge, quick to help? Do we seek opportunities to engage our neighbors, to bless them, to talk to them, to invite them over? Do you bring to bear the reality of who Christ is and to what you do, and do the people around you see that in you? One of my favorite uh, hymnists is a guy named William Cooper. Um, if you study theology or doctrine, 
and you'd like to study books on theology, my suggestion would be to study hymns. These are just gems full of wisdom. Um, William Cooper was a contemporary of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, and he has this great hymn. And I mean, this is the kind of life that I want. He says, I want that grace that springs from thee, that quickens all things where it flows, and makes a wretched thorn like me bloom as the myrtle or the rose. Dear fountain of delight unknown, no longer sink below the brim, but overflow and pour me down a living and life-giving stream. I want that life that only Jesus can give, a deep pursuit of God, a trust and reliance upon Jesus, the power that can only come from the Holy Spirit, a living and life-giving stream. Now, if you're here today and you say, okay, but, but why should I believe in Jesus? Why should I believe any of this? Okay, I can accept that Jesus said some interesting things. He claimed to be God. He's the river. I get it. He's the way of God to end this inner spiritual thirst. We get it. But why should I believe in Jesus and not any other God? Why Jesus? Well, that's a good question. And John tells us at the end of verse 39, he tells us why. He says that the Spirit has not yet come because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What does he mean by Jesus has not yet been glorified? Well, he's talking about the cross. Jesus is the only religious leader who not only talked the talk, but he walked the walk, even to the, even to the point in which he was betrayed, put on trial unjustly, and eventually killed. And the Bible tells us that the only way for God to have intimacy with us, to be near to us, to bring us into right relationships so that we can pursue Him, so that we can be on His mission, on His message, was to give Himself up to suffer and die on a cross for our sake. The cross once again reminds us that it took something outside of ourselves in order to give us life. At the cross, once again, Jesus will be positioned in such a way so that all the masses could see him. He will be once again made a public spectacle. His arms will be extended from east to west, and the very person who promised an end to thirst will cry out, I thirst. The symbols of water and wine will come pouring from his side, water mingled with blood. It's at the cross that Jesus experienced the ultimate separation from God so that we can experience the presence of God. The cross washes away the sin that keeps us from having fellowship with Him. The cross rends the temple veil in two so that all people can have access to God. It is through the cross that the people of God have access to rivers of living water. And to the degree that we embrace Christ and His cross will be the degree to which we are filled up and overflowing. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, by your Son and through your Holy Spirit, Lord, we are in desperate need of you. We long for you, O oh God. We look to your presence. 
We thank you that you have made a way through your son, Jesus Christ, in order to bring us into fellowship with you, in order to experience your presence, even if it's in a minuscule measure in the here and now. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which indwells in each and every person who believes, which empowers us, enables us to not only believe in Jesus, to thirst for you, but also to be a blessing to those around us, to be living in life-giving streams. We are so grateful for your grace and your mercy. We pray that you would pour it out in more abundance, Lord. We pray that our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our families, those who do not know Jesus would come to know Jesus, not just through our words, but through our lives. Lord, may you be glorified in everything that we do. May the people around us say, how can I get what they have? And let us respond with only through Jesus. We thank you, Lord, again, for your mercy and your compassion, your grace. We love you. And it's in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.